If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. Let me give you three places to turn. Matthew chapter 28. Romans chapter 6. And Luke chapter 22. Matthew chapter 28. Romans chapter 6, and then Luke chapter 22. Matthew 28 says this, beginning of verse 16, passage that I'm sure many of you know very well. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Romans chapter 6, when Paul writes about Baptism, it's not simply the practice of baptism and that it should be done in the church, but he provides us a theology of baptism, a picture of what baptism is to be and is to signify. And so he says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then flip back to the Gospels to Luke chapter 22. Beginning in verse 14. Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour claimed came, he reclined at the table and the, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Article 7 of the Baptist Faith and Message, Tom, you can just scroll all the way near the end of that Slide. There you go. Perfect. Article 7 of the Baptist Faith and Message. If you're, if you're new and you're just uh, following along with us on Wednesday evenings, we've been studying 
the doctrinal statement of the Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, which is called the Baptist Faith and Message. First edition was 1925, then 1963, then revised most recently in the year 2000. And we adapt so many of our church's statements of faith off of this doctrinal statement, this confession of faith. And so we come to Article 7, which is the article on baptism and the Lord's Supper. So John taught last week on the article on the church and the offices of the church, uh, the, the roles of pastors, of elders, of deacons, and then specifically one of the things that has had to be made clear in recent years in the Baptist faith and message is that while men and women may serve alongside one another in the church, Baptists have historically believed that the office of pastor or elder is only to be held by a man. That's a controversial statement in the Baptist faith and message. That's a complementarian statement that there are equality in value and dignity and in worth among men and women, but there are complementary roles that men and women are supposed to have in God's economy, both in the family and in the church. And it's clear from the New Testament and Baptists have historically made it clear that the role of pastor is to be reserved for a man. That's hard for us in our day. That's hard for us in our culture. When the ordination of women and when women pastors are happening in every other denomination basically around us, we have had to stay with what we believe is God's word in saying that should not be so. No matter how gifted a speaker no matter how knowledgeable they are regarding God's word, there are many ways for them to utilize those gifts within the context of the local church, but they should not be pastors. They should not be leading God's church. So tonight we come to the article on baptism and the Lord's Supper. And again, as I've already mentioned, we may think, like, we would all agree the same thing about baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, that's why we're Baptists. Like we, we understand and we believe rightly about uh, baptism. That's why we're in the Baptist church and not the Presbyterian church, or not the Methodist church. And I've just found that ain't the case. I'm becoming more and more convinced that a lot of Baptists don't know what they believe about baptism. I can, I can still picture it as if it happened yesterday. And I can still hear it as if it is going on right now. Tommy Henson, pastor of 35 years, the First Baptist Church of West Memphis, Arkansas, getting into the baptistry in his waders with his white robe on and his tie, not a hair out of place, baptizing people for years and years and years and years. Based upon your public profession of faith in him, I baptize you, my brother, my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. I bet I heard it a thousand times through my life. And it just always seemed like some rote formula that they taught him in preacher school. You know, this is what you say when you baptize people. Kind of like in a wedding, right? Husbands say this, wives say this. Well, when you baptize somebody, you say, you know, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. That's just what you do if you're a Baptist preacher. You know, it's 25 years before I begin to think about the implications of those words and what they mean and what's, what's really going on up there, what's happening. 
What's the congregation viewing? What are they seeing? What's taking place in the life of the person that is there? And as I went to seminary and as I became a pastor, I began thinking about like, it's, it's easy for me to get up in front of people and teach and preach. The Lord just wired me in that way. But I remember the first time I had to do baptism and I was nervous. And one of the reasons I was nervous is because it was my deacon chairman that was getting baptized. Because my deacon chairman had realized he wasn't a believer. So it was already a weird and awkward enough situation for the church. Here's this man they've known for 20 years who's confessed as the deacon chairman that he didn't believe that he was a believer. And it was a glorious thing for the church to experience, but now I've got him up there in the baptistry with me, and he's a little nervous, and I'm a little nervous, and you know, so I'm saying my little formula like I'm supposed to, and I begin to take him back in the water, and he begins sliding on me just a little bit. <laughs> and I'm trying to, you know, he wasn't a big guy, but I'm trying to hold him in place, and I hit his head on the side of the baptistry. And his head just kind of slid down into the water. And I didn't really know what to do, so I just kind of shoved him down, made sure we got him all the way under, raised him up. The crowd was like, you know, peeking to make sure he was okay. Like, okay, yeah, he's okay. Like, yay. And I'm leaning over, hugging him. Are you okay? Uh, that was my first baptism experience. They've gone a lot better since then, but... I'll always remember that first one. Uh, and since then, I've found that, that baptism and the Lord's Supper are some of the most precious things that we as a church can do together and that pastors can experience and share with the congregations. And also the most controversial. Here's what the Baptist Faith and Message says. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. If you looked at the study guide this week, if you had a copy and you followed along with it, one of the first things that they talked about on page 94, which I'll just mention briefly before we look at the next slide, is that there's a difference in the way that Baptists have understood these two ordinances and the way that so many other denominations or religious groups have in that we primarily see them as symbolic, whereas other groups see them as sacramental. So we don't refer to them as sacraments. You go into more high church denomination, Episcopal or Catholic, and they'll refer to them as these are the sacraments. And a very easy or kind of basic elementary way to try to explain that is that many denominations who refer to these acts as sacraments 
believe that in the act itself, there is a conferring of grace in the act itself. That in baptism, there is grace divinely given through, through the medium of the pastor, through the medium of the sacrament itself, to the communicant who's receiving the Lord's Supper, or to the member who's receiving baptism, and that grace is brought in, is infused into the life of the person because of this. And Baptists have, for 500 years, historically stood against this and said, no, it's memorial, it's celebration, it's remembrance, it's symbolic. Now, of course, we could get into the whole Protestant and Catholic distinction of uh, of substantiation and transubstantiation and the Roman Catholic understanding of the, the body uh, and blood of the Lord Jesus actually being present in the Lord's Supper. The, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper literally becomes the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus. That when the Eucharist is blessed, it becomes flesh and it becomes blood. And they call that doctrine transubstantiation. That it changes and it infuses grace to the people who are taking the Eucharist. The word Eucharist simply means a thanksgiving. And so there's a celebration of thanks from the person because they're receiving grace from God. That's why the Mass is so important. That's why the giving of the Lord's Supper is so important. In the Roman Catholic Church. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. Baptism is symbolic. The Lord's Supper is symbolic. It's a picture of something. It's an external picture of something that has already happened inwardly. Or is happening in an ongoing way. As it relates to the Lord's Supper. On that next slide, what I want to do is I want to try to just take the first paragraph about baptism and I want to break it down into the distinct words that are mentioned here, words that may be very common to you, words that you may have never really even thought about before. The first is the word immersion. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard this before, but the Greek word baptizo in the New Testament literally means to immerse, to plunge, to dip into. And so in all of the language of the New Testament, when it describes people being baptized, it describes them going down into the water and coming up out of the water. There's not a single instance in all of the New Testament that describes any other method or mode of baptism other than this practice. And so Baptists have always said that baptism is the immersion of who? A believer. We wouldn't think that that word would be that important. But we're not Presbyterian. We're not Methodists. We're not Catholics who believe that the baptism of infants washes away original sin. We don't believe in the sprinkling of an infant. We don't believe in the marking out of a little one as a symbol of their being a part of the covenant community. That, that baptism has in some sense replaced 
the rite or the act of circumcision from the Old Testament so that now anybody that is marked out with the sign of baptism is a part of the covenant community and then we just pray for them to become regenerate and be saved. Now, Baptists have always said baptism is for believers and believers only. Now, why would we say that? Because that's what the word says. Now, my, my good Presbyterian friends would argue with me, and this is the one area, or is certainly an area, where uh, we would agree on 99.9% .9 of so many other things in the scripture. When it comes to this idea of baptism, we are just going to butt heads constantly, and they're never going to see it our way. But Baptists, we look at the New Testament and we say, no, no, every time we see in the New Testament, even in the book of Acts, even if you want to point to those household baptisms, what we're, what we're seeing in the book of Acts is always, and it is those who received the word were baptized. It's those who professed faith were baptized. And so those who baptize infants or those who baptize children uh, who've not yet come to faith are often called pedo-baptists. Um, you go to a pediatrician with your kids. It comes from the same root, root word. So they're pedo-baptists. Um, it's, it's never a word that's used, but a, a really nerdy way for us to think about baptism is that we are credo-baptists. The word, the word creed just means something that you believe in. So we, we believe that baptism is reserved for believers, those who have come to faith in Jesus and professed faith in Jesus, who have established this creed with their mouth and with their heart that Jesus is their Lord, that baptism is reserved for them, and that baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, does something magical happen when we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Why do we feel like we have to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son? Is someone not baptized if the pastor doesn't give the right verbal formula and doesn't say all three members of the Trinity? Like, no, the reason we read Matthew 28 is to just be reminded that this is the commission that Jesus is giving his apostles, that people are to be made disciples and then they're to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's not some magical rite or formula. It's a reminder that there's a Trinitarian salvific work that's going on in the life of this person who's given their faith and their heart to Jesus. God has ordained. Christ has accomplished. The Spirit has quickened. And they're being baptized into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A work of the Father, a work of the Son, a work of the Holy Spirit. So there's this Trinitarian formula. In the workbook, it, it asked you at the very end of the chapter, what are the three things that baptism symbolizes as it relates to Jesus? And those three things are death, burial, resurrection. And then it asked you, what three things does it symbolize in the life of a believer? Death. Burial, resurrection. So, so first, it's a picture of Christ's physical death. It's a picture of him being laid in the tomb. It's a picture of his death for our sins. 
It's a picture of his burial. And it's a picture of his resurrection. So I tell people, if I put you under the water and I don't take you up, what happens to you? You die. Right? The, the water, I believe, throughout the Old Testament is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of death. Noah and the ark, crossing the Red Sea, Jonah and the whale. Over and over again, we see these images of the chaos of God's wrath and judgment in the water. And Jesus goes down into the water and as a picture of what's about to happen in his physical life, he announces to his church, you're going to die with me spiritually. But just as I am raised to walk in newness of life, you're going to be made a new creation. So you're going to spiritually identify with my death. You're going to die to the old self. And that old man is going to be buried. What you are professing to the church is that the old man is dead, but that there is newness of life. I think about that formula. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Where does that come from? It comes from Romans chapter 6. I was probably four years into seminary before one day in systematic theology, it, it just finally dawned on me. That language comes from Romans 6. Do you not know that those who are united to him are buried in the likeness of his death? And if you are buried in the likeness of his death, you are also raised to walk in newness of life. That's just biblical language. It's biblical language to remind the person undergoing baptism and the church, this is what's happening in the life of this person. And as is said here in the Baptist Faith and Message, it's a testimony of the person's faith in the final resurrection. So when someone's baptized on Sunday mornings, typically, sadly, so often, perhaps you and me, it's just a celebratory rite for that person, right? They finally got saved. It's typically a young person. They finally got saved. They got baptism. We'll give them a little Bible, like praise the Lord. And we don't think about the theological significance of what's going on here. That they're buried in the likeness of Christ's death, raised to walk in newness of life. And that this picture is a picture that not only they, but the whole church believe in the future resurrection of the dead. That we will all be raised once again, just as Christ was raised, to walk in real, eternal newness of life. Now. You come to Romans 6, you think about the language of death and burial and resurrection. Does any other way of baptizing people give a picture of death and burial and resurrection? Like immersion into water? Again, I, some of my greatest friends are Presbyterians. And I love them dearly. And I just, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And we just talk past each other all the time. And I read their books and they read my books and we just don't get it. 
And, and this is one of the main things that I come back to over and over and over again. How do you get a picture of death, burial, and resurrection with sprinkling? You don't get that. It's not what baptism is. And they have their answers. And I, I'm just going to be honest with you. They've got some good answers. They've got some, they've got some really good, solid, tight, exegetical arguments from Scripture. I just don't buy it. I just don't see it. Um, so, being a church ordinance, next slide. Being a church ordinance, the Baptist Faith and Message says, it's prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Next, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. So there's elements of the Lord's Supper. Jesus instituted this Last Supper with the breaking of bread and the fruit of the vine. The reason that I read from Luke chapter 22 is so that us good Baptists could be reminded that there's at least one passage of Scripture where the words fruit of the vine are used and not wine, right? Uh, It's okay for us to use juice. Wine wasn't the same in the first century anyway. It certainly could get you drunk, but it's not the same as wine today. So it's not wrong for us to use something that's not wine in the Lord's Supper. We use the fruit of the vine. Jesus said, I won't drink this fruit of the vine again until the kingdom comes. The Lord's Supper is this symbolic act where in the breaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, we memorialize the death of the Redeemer. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's 1 Corinthians 10 when Paul gives instructions to the church about the Lord's Supper. Now, same pastor that I would tell you about, uh, my, my same home church, and I know that this is the experience for many of you, I watched uh, as a child almost in horror sometimes as I would come in the sanctuary and the plates for the Lord's Supper would be mounded up here with the big white sheet over it like there was a dead body at the front of the, of the church. And I just always thought it was strange. And you know, every plate was perfectly aligned and uh, every, every plate had to be perfectly passed out. And then we tasted this little bread that tasted like chalk and it didn't even taste like bread. And uh, I was always a little bit kind of weirded out by the Lord's Supper. Never really understood the significance of it. Never understood why my parents wouldn't let me have it when I was little. Um, Those are good questions for little people to ask. What's this for? What's happening? What's going on? Mom and dad, why can't I have it? Why does the pastor keep saying that I need to be baptized first? Those are good questions to ask. And I remember as I really began to think about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, I remember thinking like, the organ's always playing really sad music when we have the Lord's Supper. Shouldn't we be happy that Jesus has risen from the dead? There's nothing wrong with playing serious music. There's nothing wrong with us having formality. The Bible doesn't tell us how we're to pass out the Lord's Supper. The Bible doesn't tell us what we should carry the Lord's Supper in. The Bible doesn't tell us how deacons should dress when they pass out the Lord's Supper. Right? We have freedom in those things. But the significance of the Lord's Supper, the significance of what's happening in the moment where the body of Christ comes together and they declare, baptism is 
our one and only act where we are initiated into the body of Christ. And the Lord's Supper is our ongoing reminder and profession of faith that we still believe it, that we're still walking by it, and that we'll anticipate his second coming until he comes again. And so we don't need to like scrunch up our face and feel sorry for Jesus. It shouldn't feel like a funeral when we take the Lord's Supper. We should declare the gospel. We should be serious and we should reflect. 1 Corinthians 10 says that. Examine yourself. But it should also be a moment of celebration, of symbolic significance, great theological import when we take the Lord's Supper. It should be something that we love to do. We should get excited for first Sundays. We get to take the Lord's Supper with our brothers and sisters in Christ again today. That's the kind of feeling, that's the kind of culture that I hope we'll build here at First Baptist. Now, I got about 10 minutes left, six minutes left, uh, and I want to take you through my beliefs about baptism that caused me trouble. Um, I don't, notice I didn't put caused me trouble. Uh, these are still ongoing conversations. Um, so here's my top 10 list, and this will, this will help us think through these doctrines, I think, a little more carefully. And I hope, I hope, as I explain to you some of the difficulties that I've had in ministry, I hope that my beliefs and my convictions align with what we've read from Scripture and what we've talked about from this statement of faith. The first is that baptism is immersion. Why would that cause me trouble? Because all the time, I have to talk to people who say, I was baptized as a baby in the Presbyterian church. And I have to say, no, you weren't. You may think it was baptism, but it wasn't baptism. And so I've had people that have said to me before, are you saying that baptism, that the only proper mode of baptism, the only way that baptism can be done is in immersion in water? Like, no, I'll take it even further than that. It's not just that immersion is the only proper mode. It's that baptism is immersion and nothing else. And so we, we, we constantly have to come back to the scripture and just say, can we make a biblical case for anything else? We, we are Baptists, right? But this is something that in the last six years, God has been pleased for whatever reason to bring people to First Baptist from Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian backgrounds, they're coming to First Baptist. They're enjoying our worship. And maybe some of you. And they come to our Discover class. They want to talk about membership. And it gets to this topic and things get sticky. And we have some people in our church who come regularly, faithfully, 
They give to our church. They serve in our church in certain ways. And they aren't members. And they aren't members because they won't get baptized. Because they believe that they've already been baptized in another denomination. And we say, no, you haven't. Two, that there's really no such thing as being baptized again. Look, I don't pick theological fights with people. You, you all may think that I do that. I don't like sit and wait till somebody says something wrong and then jab them. But all the time I hear people say, you know, I was saved when I was five and I was baptized as a kid, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I, was, I, I got baptized again when I was 12. But then when I was in college, that's when I think the Lord really got a hold of me. So I've been baptized three times. No, you haven't. You've been baptized once. And the first two times, you just got wet. <laughs> because baptism is for believers only. If you're not yet a true believer, you haven't been baptized. You may have gone through the water. The pastor may have said all the right words, and you may have a card that commemorates it, but it's not baptism. Until you've believed. And then and only then is it baptism. I've had lots of people that have come and they've said, I just feel like I need to rededicate my life. I hadn't been in church in a couple of years and I just want to be back in church. I just want to walk with Jesus more closely. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved, but I just feel like I need to be baptized again. No, you don't. Are you a believer or not? Have you been baptized or not? If you're not a believer then you need to become a believer first. And then you could be baptized, but not baptized again, baptized for the first time. If you've already become a believer and you've already been baptized, then you don't need to be baptized again. You just need to live for Jesus. A second baptism doesn't even make sense in Scripture, and a second baptism isn't going to do something magical and like help you really nail it down, at least it shouldn't, because that's not the theological significance of baptism. And it shouldn't be used as some emotional tool to help you feel better about your spiritual life. Fourth, and this is one that causes probably the most controversy, that children should actually understand the gospel clearly and show at least some fruit, or some evidence of conversion or that they should be cautioned to wait on baptism. Do we believe that baptism saves? Yeah. No. If baptism doesn't save, then I often have to ask parents, what's the hurry? What's the hurry? I've, I firmly believe, firmly believe that part of the problem that we have in the Southern Baptist Convention with so many people who aren't in church and are not walking with the Lord is because we have wrongly given a false sense of assurance of salvation by baptizing kids who are way too young to really understand the gospel. But we've led them to pray a prayer. We've led them to ask Jesus into their hearts. There's nothing in the Bible about asking Jesus into your heart. And they don't understand the gospel. 
You may have heard me tell the story about the Sunday school teacher I had in my previous church. She came running down the hall with this little boy. His grandmother told me that he became a believer and uh, he wants to be baptized. And I asked him, you know, what happened? And he said he asked Jesus into his heart and he wants to be baptized. Isn't that great, Pastor? Can we baptize him? And so I set the kid down. He was about seven or eight. I set him down and just started asking him, like, the most basic questions that you could think of. Like, who is Jesus? What is sin? You didn't, have the, you didn't have the first clue. And we were about to baptize that kid? Pa- pastors have, we have that on our conscience. Churches should have that on their conscience. Parents should have that on their conscience. But boy, there's no battle like when you have to talk with parents about whether or not their kids understand the gospel. And ultimately, one of the great graces that I think the Lord has given us as pastors is parents that we can trust. A lot of times we can trust. And I'll often say to parents, look, my conscience is going to be clear because I trust you. And I trust that you're going to disciple your kid and that you're going to help your kid really understand the gospel. And that may be the only reason that I feel comfortable baptizing a child that's this young. Yes, I think that kids can believe, truly believe and repent. And I pray that the Lord would save kids young. I think they don't have to know theology. They don't have to take an exam. But they need to be able to understand the gospel clearly. There needs to be some evidence of change, of belief, of conversion. Five, that baptism is the public profession of one's faith. If I were to ask the church, how does someone publicly profess their faith in Jesus? I'd get all kinds of answers, right? They walk an aisle, they tell the pastor, they fill out a card, they raise their hand during an invitation. Um, That's typically gonna be the kind of thing that so many Baptists would remark. But the only public profession of faith that's given in the New Testament is baptism. I've been asked lots of times, like, why I don't draw out invitations more on Sundays. Some Sundays we have really serious times of responses where I really point the gospel and really call people to repentance or faith or to join the church. And there's other weeks we may be out of time. There's other weeks that the text just isn't as evangelistic. And I don't give as much of an invitation or a response. And I've had people that have said, How are people ever going to publicly profess their faith in Jesus if you don't give a chance for them to walk the aisle? Well, they're going to publicly profess their faith in Jesus the way that Christians have for 2,000 years. They're going to be baptized. They're going to tell someone. They're going to talk to a pastor. It doesn't have to be walking an aisle. We're going to still walk aisles. We're going to still talk to the pastors in this church. But that's not a biblical formula. The biblical formula is that. That's how we stand in front of people and say, this is my profession. And this is what the church can identify as my profession. They're going to affirm me in this and hold me accountable in this and love me in this. And that happens in the waters of baptism. Number six. Sorry, Pastor Tim. Number six. That baptism is prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. First time I ever did the Lord's Supper here, I said, if you've never been baptized by immersion, then please just let the elements go past you, which means that I've ruled out Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Catholics and everybody else. And I took great grief after that. Why would you say that people need to be baptized 
by immersion in order to take the Lord's Supper here. And honestly, my first response was, I did become the pastor at First Baptist, right? This is First Baptist Church, checking to make sure. Um, I just thought that's the way that it had always been done here. I thought that's the way that, that the table, as it's called, had always been fenced. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be exclusive. The Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers, so we've already excluded some people. The Lord's table, Baptists have always believed, should only be believers. Believers. So not little children that have been sprinkled. Not those that have never been baptized scripturally. And so what I told the deacons as we talked through this is, and as you may have noticed on Sundays, what I will typically say is, if you are a baptized believer. So I took out the language of immersion. People know my conviction. You'll know it even more now. But like, I'm not going to police it. And my conscience can be clear enough that I'll just simply state baptized believer and hope that the church knows what I mean by that. And if somebody thinks that they're baptized and they want to take the Lord's Supper, like we're not going to smack it out of their hands. <laughs> we're not going to run, you know, run across the sanctuary and knock the plate out of their hands. Uh, we're just not going to do that. That's between them and the Lord. It's between them and the Lord. But Bapt like people have said, why do you believe that? Well, I believe that because of Scripture, but I also believe it because that's what the Baptist faith and message says. We just read it. This is our confession of faith. Baptism is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. And it's just defined baptism as immersion. Number seven, that baptism and the Lord's Supper are church ordinances and should not be done outside the context or authority of the local church. Do I think that, that, that the Lord's Supper should be taken to shut-ins if they want it? Sure. Because it can be taken in the context and under the authority of the local church. If a shut-in wants the Lord's Supper, our pastors or the deacons can take that person the Lord's Supper on the day that the body observes the Lord's Supper. And they can participate with the body from afar. I believe that with all of my heart. Do I believe that a youth group that goes to camp and sees somebody raise their hands and say that they want to be a believer should baptize people in an ocean or should take the Lord's Supper with like Kool-Aid and crackers? No. Should not be done. Why? Because baptism and the Lord's Supper are church ordinances. It's to be done in the context of the local church. It's to be done on the Lord's day in worship as the people are gathered together. There's no church there. There's no group that they're identifying with. There's no spiritual authority that they're submitting their life to and holding themselves accountable to. I've had lots of parents and grandparents ask me about that one before. Number eight, that the Lord's Supper should be done regularly. We all know from the New Testament that Jesus took the Lord's Supper quarterly. <laughs> right? That's what Jesus did. That's what Baptist churches should do. One of the first things I've tried to do in both of the churches that I've pastored is we need to take the Lord's Supper more. Well, won't it just become tradition? Won't it just become ritualistic? Won't it mean less? No, no, no. Not if we do it right. 
not if we talk about it right. I, I, I don't know that we should do it every week, although I think the early church probably did it every week. Every time they were together, breaking bread, prayers, reminding themselves of the Lord's death. I don't have any problem with churches that do it every week. But I love first Sundays. At least we're doing it like 12 times a year. If I had my druthers, we'd probably do it more than that. It's significant. The church should do it. We should do it more regularly. Nine, that we shouldn't take the Lord's Supper with those with whom we know we have serious doctrinal disagreements. When we have Holy Week services, and in the past when they've offered the Lord's Supper, I won't take it. I won't take it. Because I know what some of those folks in their denominations believe. And I take 1 Corinthians 10 seriously, that we should examine ourselves. I don't believe the same thing as that person. I know I don't believe the same things about the gospel as that person. I'm not going to participate with them in this theologically significant act of the Lord's table. Do I think it's sinful? Do I think people are going to go to hell if they do it? No. But my conscience is bound, and so often I, I just won't even go those days if I know they're going to serve the Lord's table. I've been at weddings before where they've served a mass. I've been at funerals before where they've served a mass. I've had people that have nudged me in the aisle and have said, you know, you're a pastor. Aren't you going to get, get out and go down front? And like, no, I'm not going to have a Catholic priest put a wafer in my mouth and say the body and blood of our Lord. Like, no, it's not. No, we have to believe what Scripture says. Number 10. That the church should practice church discipline. And so, no longer affirm one's profession of faith. People have said, what's church discipline? Well, first of all, it's biblical. We don't have time to talk about it tonight. We don't really practice it here. We should, but we don't. But the primary like thing that church discipline does is it removes someone from the membership of the church and it really encourages that person to not come to the Lord's table. Because what you're saying in the life of someone who's in unrepentant sin, who refuses to believe in Jesus, who refuses to walk away from their sin, what you're saying to them as a church is, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. The Bible tells us that we're supposed to treat you as an unbeliever. We're supposed to treat you as an unbeliever. One of the hardest conversations that I've ever had was with a dear friend of this church who committed adultery on his wife and left her and tried to convince me that what he was doing was okay. And I had to talk to him on the phone. We had just elected him as a deacon. And I had to say, I love you. But the Bible's clear that I'm supposed to treat you like an unbeliever now. You're not repenting of your sins. You shouldn't be a member of our church. You shouldn't come to the Lord's table. So what we're doing in baptism is we're saying, yes, that person has shown evidence of faith. They've shown that their heart's been changed. We confess that they're going to be a part of our body. They're going to be held accountable. We're going to love them, and we're going to affirm their profession of faith. And week by week in the Lord's Supper, we're saying, yes, 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 yes. 
Brothers and sisters, yes, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when someone is unrepentant and will not turn away from their sin, what we're saying is no longer. Your, your life is not showing any longer that, that we can affirm what we once affirmed. And these 10 things have caused me many hours of heartache and counsel and struggle with people. Who would have ever thought that baptism and the Lord's Supper could be so controversial? Like, just put them in the water and drink the juice. Who cares? I'm already past my time for the choir. Thank you all for paying attention. Um, since we are already late, if you need to go, please go. But I, I'll take a couple of minutes of, of questions because I know I may have raised some here at the end. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I don't know what you're referencing. As far as why I'm sprinkled. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's gone different ways. I mean, I think some people just really, they just really believe they were baptized. And so you're not going to tell them any difference. Um, With some people, I've had to say, then why are you coming to a Baptist church? Like, if you really hold, well, because I love the people, I love the music, I love the preaching. Like, well, then maybe you should rethink your convictions and become a Baptist. Uh, with some people that's been the case with others it's been like this has been my whole life this is this is in some sense feels like a betrayal of my family and of the way that I was brought up and I've got to really think through this Uh, and some people come to the conviction that we believe and some some don't some don't